You're listening to a music and talk episode where full songs and talk segments play together only on Spotify. Best of all, you can create your own music and talk show for free with Anchor, Spotify's podcasting platform. Get started at anchor.fm slash music and talk. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash M-U-S-I-C-A-N-D-T-A-L-K. A lot of spelling there, but just do it. Look out! It is an emergency episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It is mid-January 2021, and who could have foreseen that this humble enterprise, dedicated as we are to, like, 30-year-old songs, would require an emergency episode? I certainly could not have foreseen this, and I'm your host, Ringer music critic Rob Harvilla. Nonetheless emergency episode. It's like James Harden got traded again. Trust me, this is necessary. And trust me when I say that first, I need to tell you about the second to last time I saw the new radicals perform You Get What You Give on stage. The second to last time I saw the new radicals perform You Get What You Give on stage was the culmination of the 90s-est five-day span of my whole entire life. This was December 1998. I was a junior in college and a lowly intern at a Cleveland alt-weekly, for whom I reviewed three concerts in five days. Concert number one, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, the swing band, swing revival band from Swingers. The movie, people danced, swing danced, I did not dance. I was a professional. Concert number two, Seven Dust and Godsmack. A pretty rad new metal double bill. If we're honest, Seven Dust were quite drunk and jovial. Godsmack, who are not quite yet multi-platinum stars, were of course named after an Alice in Chains song about heroin. I understand that's redundant, but Godsmack, the Alice in Chains song, is like extra about heroin. People moshed. I did not mosh. I was a professional. Had I not been a lowly intern, I might have gotten to cover the bigger show in Cleveland that night, Aerosmith with Seven Mary Three opening. A bitter disappointment at the time. To miss that one, probably dodged a bullet. Concert number three, a bizarre all-day alt-rock radio station festival and canned food drive co-headlined by the ska punk band Less Than Jake and the New Radicals. Somebody should probably do a 20,000-word long read on Less Than Jake. I can't guarantee you it won't be me. Less Than Jake are lifers. They have my enduring respect. They were ska punk way before ska punk was cool and also long after. They tour to this day, pandemic willing. Less Than Jake fans love Less Than Jake. Also, (laughs) anecdotally, Less Than Jake fans hate the New Radicals. What we knew then about the New Radicals, basically it's what we know now. They were from L.A. and were led by singer-songwriter, only guy on the album cover, multi-instrumentalist, charming narcissist, and bucket hat enthusiast Greg Alexander. Two Gs at the end of Greg. That's a warning sign. You get what you give, an upbeat piano jam like Billy Joel in a good mood for once, and the nominal band's one and only hit was still climbing the charts at this point. In the unlikely event that you get what you give is not already stuck in your head, let's just get this over with. You got the music in 
In Cleveland, the new radicals take the stage first. Among the more cynical among us, already there's a sense that they are destined to be one-hit wonders. Actually, for a long time, I thought they were English. They are not. Greg is from Gross Point, Michigan. He was raised a Jehovah's Witness. He used to drive around with his mom listening to Motown. He heard Prince's The Beautiful Ones as a teenager and resolved to run away to California and become a rock star. And then he did. But I don't know. He looked at me like he smelled like fish and chips. Maybe it was the bucket hat. He looks a little like Carl Pilkington from the Ricky Gervais extended universe. You can picture him dancing to Depeche Mode in front of the Mayan Pyramid at Chichen Itza. Anyway, Greg and the New Radicals are going for it in this moment in terms of chasing pop stardom for what would turn out to be a remarkably brief period of time. Going for it here defined as willing to play a canned food drive in Cleveland a week before Christmas. Greg does not seem happy to be there in Cleveland a week before Christmas. As I wrote at the time, quote, Confusion reigned from the get-go. As frontman Greg Alexander appeared deeply influenced by some sort of powerful narcotic, he mumbled incoherently, danced like an extra in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and broke into a cringe-inducing freestyle rap that made the bare-naked ladies sound like the Wu-Tang. End quote. Forgive me. I was not yet the master wordsmith that stands before you today. The crowd is indifferent. Halfway through the set, the band pulls out, you get what you give. The crowd perks up. The New Radicals proceed to play other, far less popular New Radical songs. The crowd once again grows indifferent. The set ends. Blessedly, no encore is requested. And yet, the New Radicals return for an encore anyway. The encore consists of you get what you give again. At this point, a disgruntled crowd member yells out, somebody find a power outlet. It wasn't me. I was a professional. And then I watch as a sizable group of less than Jake fans huddle together in the middle of the crowd, stand silently with their middle fingers raised toward the stage for the entirety of You Get What You Give again. Not a great time to be surrounded by canned food. This is my enduring image of You Get What You Give by the New Radicals, or at least it was until the very last time I saw the New Radicals play You Get What You Give on stage, which was in mid-January 2021 as part of Joe Biden's virtual presidential inauguration. Wow. Wow. Emergency episode. Like you, perhaps, there I was on Sunday evening, minding my own business, which is to say mindlessly scrolling Twitter, and there it was, via Rolling Stone, the new radicals will reunite for the first time in 22 years to perform You Get What You Give for something called a virtual parade event to celebrate the inauguration on Wednesday, January 20th, 2021, of President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. The new radicals imploded pretty quietly as implosions go in 1999, basically while You Get What You Give was still on the charts. So first thing I do, 
tweet a joke about Joe Biden kicking Marilyn Manson's ass in. Second thing I do, tweet about the less than Jake thing. I said in the tweet that the new radicals played You Get What You Give three times at that show. I regret the error. It was only twice. Though in my defense, You Get What You Give twice basically feels like any other song three times. Third thing I do, ruminate privately for once on how random and absurd and openly dystopian this all feels this pairing of song and political event hopefully not like you i react like the doom scrolling cynic i have become universal health care wake up kids we got the dreamer's disease Student loan debt relief. So polite, we're busy still saying please. At least I didn't tweet a new centrist's joke. With this Biden thing, some cynicism is warranted. American politics and American pop music are forever shouting past each other. On the right, you get several generations now of Republican superstars too busy to Google the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. On the left, you get maximum cringe situations like Pete Buttigieg staffers going viral while dancing to Panic at the Disco. Or, you know, I suppose I could just say the words fight song and then run into the sea. However, and this is going to hurt a little, but I ought to quickly puncture some of the WTF-ness of this particular song choice. The New Radicals are a part of the Biden-Harris inauguration spectacular for two reasons. Reason number one, Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, used You Get What You Give as his personal walk-on music during the 2020 presidential campaign. I was not aware that all the spouses of presidential or vice presidential candidates have personalized walk-on songs. This is not my area of expertise. Reason number two is that according to Joe Biden's 2017 memoir, Promise Me, Dad, You Get What You Give was adopted as something of a theme song by his son, Bo Biden, during Bo's battle with cancer. They'd play it over breakfast. Bo died in 2015. Joe quotes these lines from the song's bridge in his son's honor. So that is brutal, just really unspeakably brutal. But what you can say about You Get What You Give is that it can somehow bear the weight of that brutality and also bear the weight of the absurdity of this moment as well, the Mad Libs trending topic anarchy of this whole era. This song means nothing and also means everything. I have to say I find any details about this song's construction the New Radicals biography, uh, Greg Alexander's early years in L.A. bouncing between label deals. I find the backstory here to be abnormally unsatisfying, even when it's funny. Greg's first two solo albums were named Michigan Rain and Intoxifornication, respectively. It's not that I don't care. It's that I reject the notion that this song wasn't just a giant cosmic anomaly, a meteor that hit the earth a meteor wearing a bucket hat. The New Radicals were nominally a band, at least live, but there's Greg, and only Greg, wearing the hat, on the cover of their 1998 debut and farewell album, 
Maybe You've Been Brainwashed Too. And that title gives you some idea of how chaotic and pompous and ideologically convoluted this subversive major label pop record gets. It sounds like a bright-eyed and white kid from the Detroit suburbs who's still obsessed with Motown, but it's also lurid as all hell, just comically excessively lurid. Many fine 90s pop songs are probably about cocaine, but new radical songs about cocaine are like extra about cocaine. That's from a sex and drugs travelogue called I Hope I Didn't Just Give Away the Ending. Multiple deaths very Tarantino. I don't think that's how big in Japan works, but then again, I don't have a sex tape. Third Eye Blind's Semi-Charmed Life, a huge hit in 1997, is a reference point here, I suppose. Maximum dorky pop plus maximum drug binge shock value. Greg Alexander somehow always seemed both more and far less professional. Sometimes, by design, he sounds like a warbling, incoherently mumbling hot mess, and sometimes he sounds like a craven L.A. studio pro with a surprisingly affecting falsetto who's just going for it, with a truly frightening focus and intensity at all times. His big, weepy power ballad is called Someday We'll Know. I refuse to look this up, but I just know in my heart this song has soundtracked an extra weepy moment in a Scrubs episode. JD got dumped again. Get a load of this line reading. Did the captain of the Titanic cry? It's a good question. A profound question. Take a minute to compose yourselves. Half of me wants to sell you on the whole of maybe you've been brainwashed too as this underrated sloppy masterpiece. There's another power ballad called I Don't Want to Die Anymore. And if Scrubs didn't use that one too, they really should have. But the other half of me knows that only you get what you give matters. The rest of the album seems to be aware that only you get what you give matters. Greg Alexander co-wrote You Get What You Give with Rick Knowles, who worked with Celine Dion and Madonna and Adele and Lana Del Rey. He's in the Songwriter Hall of Fame. He's as industry pro as it gets. One entirely sincere point that I want to make here is that the pre-chorus to You Get What You Give is immaculate. It is in the pre-chorus Hall of Fame. It is like a jumbo jet full of cocaine exploding into the sun. And then there is the matter of the outro. Greg would later clarify that the outro is a social experiment. The first half of the outro is political and earnest and deep, man. Uh, Health insurance ripoff lying is maybe not the most elegant way to put it, but it sure as hell beats Pete Buttigieg. The second half of the outro is celebrity trash talk. The social experiment was to see if everyone ignored the trenchant political commentary and just fixated on the trash talk, which, of course, is what happened. Greg would later admit that he was disillusioned by this, that we as a society chose tabloid intrigue over uh, the issues. 
he did not actually want to kick the Hanson brothers' asses in. Hanson, Manson, Mansions, Assin is in the rhyming Hall of Fame, by the way. It's like the sun giving birth to a jumbo jet full of cocaine. This was all just a little test, and society failed. And so then Greg disappeared, or at least the new radicals did. They broke up in 1999, ostensibly while promoting their second single, which for the record was Someday We'll Know, and the captain of the Titanic started crying again, and Greg became himself a shadowy studio pro. He and Rick Knowles co-wrote the Carlos Santana hit The Game of Love. Shout out Michelle Branch. He worked with British pop star Sophie Ellis Bexter and the Irish boy band Boyzone and Enrique Iglesias. He also co-wrote a song with Hanson, which was a nice gesture, I thought. In 2013, he was even nominated for an Oscar for the song Lost Stars from the Kira Knightley, Mark Ruffalo drama Begin Again. Greg even did an interview or two, a pop star emerging from his self-imposed exile sort of deal to give quotes like, for artists, the dream is to touch people with your art. Now it seems like artists are props for selfies. Sure. Then he disappeared again until Joe Biden got elected president. The last time I saw the new radicals perform You Get What You Give on stage was 10 minutes ago during the Biden-Harris administration's virtual parade across America. It was anticlimactic. Not radical in any sense. You could say that we got what we gave. I will take Greg's word for it that his fellow musicians on this anonymous soundstage were, in fact, also former members of the New Radicals. Everybody looked 22 years older, but not aggressively so. Greg did wear the hat, which I appreciate. What I do not appreciate is that the song was heavily truncated and he did not do the outro. No talk of health insurance, of the FDA, of cloning while we're multiplying. Nary an ass was kicked in. I don't care if it's really will kick your asses. I've heard it as ass in for 22 years and I'm not going to stop now. They even cut out the part in the first verse about smashing a Mercedes Benz every night. A grave disappointment. A huge missed opportunity. Now is the time for unity. I suppose. I've had you get what you give stuck in my head for the past 72 hours, and I'm still not mad about it. And this is as nice a thing as I can say about any song by anyone ever. I do think that the term one-hit wonder, in addition to being derisive, does not account for whether the artist in question even tried to have a second hit. I don't think this was the takeaway Joe Biden meant for us today, but the new radicals get points for not trying. That is restraint. That is dedication. Dedication to what I couldn't say. All I know is that You Get What You Give is a song about not knowing how to feel and also feeling every possible human emotion simultaneously. And it gets a rise out of you. And that, if nothing else, it gets you to raise your hands or your fists or your lighter or your middle fingers. I very much hope to see Greg Alexander in person again one day, even if he is once again antagonizing all the Less Than Jake fans around me. For today, at least, that hope is enough of a reason to live.
My guest today is best-selling author and longtime Rolling Stone critic Rob Sheffield. Rob, thank you so much for being here, and congratulations to Rolling Stone for breaking this, uh, the biggest music industry story of the decade, I think, uh, the new radicals. Quite possibly the only music story of the decade to bring the future of democracy together with the new radicals. Yes. Bucket hats have never been more resonant <laughs> than in 2021. One of the many unexpected headlines of this year. What is the story with that hat, actually? It's like, that's the one thing you know about this guy. Your only visual cue to this band is the guy's hat. Is there like a philosophical explanation that he ever offered? One of the many mysteries we will get to about right, the yes. okay, unique good. and bizarre story of this song. <laughs> the bucket hat is definitely chief among them. Yes. Uh, well, let's not get too fancy here. Why is You Get What You Give the greatest song ever written? Like, what, account, <laughs> what accounts for its superiority to all other songs? A song that was so completely out of time in 1998, mm. a song that yeah. sounded like nothing else at the time, and a song that has journeyed through time, has never for a moment ceased to be popular, has never left the airwaves, never a song you're surprised to hear in the wild, mm -hmm. and always a song that makes the surroundings better. You're always in a mood to hear it. <laughs> Nobody goes for their bathroom break at the karaoke place when they do this song. In, in case you have a short memory, karaoke places were very popular mm. in the pre-pandemic era. Yeah. Google them. They were, they were a big deal. <laughs> I should have known that this was a big karaoke song for you. Is this in your repertoire? This is in every repertoire. This yeah. is one of those ones. It's almost like the, um, I don't know what the non-evil twin, it's like the non-evil twin version of the Four Non Blonde song that, that right, I love, right. but a lot of people hate. But that's one no, that I get it. you're always hearing from the other karaoke rooms in whatever <laughs> bar you're doing karaoke in. Yeah, yeah. you walk to the bathroom and it's just coming out of every other door yes. that you Those pass. Those two yes. songs are always being sung in, in, in somewhere in the karaoke bar. In 1998, did you immediately know that you get what you give would have this longevity, like this is an instant classic, or did it sort of grow into that status for you? No, definitely knew it was an instant classic. Everything okay. about it was so unbelievably weird, so mm -hmm. out of place. I mean, just to start at the beginning, the completely ironic, mind-blowingly awesome one, two, one, two, three, four <laughs> intro, like the idea of a Utterly, completely sincere, mega pompous mm -hmm. one, two, three, four intro. Correction. One, two, one, two, three. There wow. it is. There like, it is. Let's be thorough. It was so beautiful. I mean, that just really like set up the whole over the topness of the song. Nothing else sounded like it. It was this weird blast of mid 80s production, a very specific late 85, 86 kind mm -hmm. of, you know, rock production. Very much hollow notes circa big bam boom. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. nothing sounded like that in 1998. Um, and you, for Rolling Stone, you did a huge list of the best songs of 98, and You Get What You Give was number 10, I believe. It was like one slot higher than Still Not a Player. I, I was wondering, first of all, if Joe Biden might convince you to bump up the new radicals into you know, like the top five, maybe? It's a thing where, you know, every song from 1998, just a very weird year. As you know, doing this podcast... Of all the, the 90s years, 1998 is perhaps the 90s -est year just by being yes. so isolated from the others. You know, like mm -hmm. a song that sounds very 1994. You can think of lots of songs that are emblematically 1994 or emblematically 1992. But 1998 was just every trend was sort of throwing up the weirdest sort of <laughs> left field experimental ideas. 
And so everything, everything from 1998 sounded like it only could have been 1998. Is there any reason for that? Like any sort of industry situation that makes it like that? Or is it just random that it's an anomaly? There's probably like a lot of different types of industry analysis that we could do. De- definitely like a time for one hit wonders, definitely like a year for last minute scams, definitely songs for <laughs> like things that have been like kicking around for a few years without taking off. 1998 is when they took off. Mm-hmm. And so lots of songs that were huge in 1998, you know, have stayed huge and have stayed classics, but they're very emblematic of that really strange, isolated weird time in in 90s history specifically but the new radicals the fact that it's an inauguration song it's just kind of beautiful (laughs) well yeah what do you make of the fact of this song coming back at this moment in world history like is this a good sign or a bad sign i think it's unquestionably a good sign it's i love that biden is demonstrating from the start that he's making a place for new radicals in in his administration. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that's a, a touching sign in itself, but also not a song that anybody thought of as a band. It was a, a classic one-hit wonder song, a song that was very much presented as a one-hit wonder. Definitely yeah. like a song that was clearly presented from the start as, here we are, we're putting all our crazy ideas in one song. It would have been Definitely the kind of song where it would have been disappointing if they had a second song in them. I was going to ask, like, my crackpot theory is that it's so much more effective as a one-hit wonder. And if, like, the New Radicals had put out five more albums and, like, tried to top it, like, we would think less of the genuine, the original in retrospect. Like, it's just so perfect that they vanished on purpose, like, almost immediately after this song came out. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing about this song is, is that they... You know, they really wanted to do like the ultimate one-hit wonder song mm-hmm. where there was no rise, no fall. Just, you know, <laughs> this one this one perfectly realized song. Um, I remember listening to their album all the way through, which I know I did at least twice. Sure. And, and feeling the strange but undeniable sense of relief that there weren't any other good songs on it or even acceptable <laughs> songs on it. It's like it would have been disappointing, like... I don't know what your personal feelings about Right Said Fred are. Mm. I remember the second time I heard a, a Right Said Fred song and liked it, I was almost disappointed. Oh, god! It was Don't Talk, Just Kiss, which is, you know, a very good second-tier Right Said Fred song. But I remember thinking, ah, oh, darn, you know, like, because I'm So Sexy would have been just a perfect one-hit wonder song. And it, it became something different that they had other songs that were lesser Right Said Fred songs. But I remember... Listening to the the new Radical CD, maybe you've been brainwashed too. Oh yeah, good title. Good yes, title. Lots of really clever song titles on that album. <laughs> Jehovah gave this jam to you. That's right. Yes. And the fact that absolutely none of them were attached to half decent songs, there was this, this kind of <laughs> relief, you know, that this real sense of joy that they they understood their mission as a one hit wonder kind of group. You're not a, a someday will know guy, is what I'm taking from this. It's, that one holds up for me a little bit. It's like oh, a you got to be kidding! You're me. making a face. You're making a really scrunched up kind of face right now. So maybe not. Okay, yeah, I, I, I think it was comparable <laughs> to White Town, Your Woman, mm, and I remember yeah, yeah. listening to the White Town album and definitely having fingers crossed of like, God, I hope <laughs> the rest of these songs completely suck and we never hear any of them because Your Woman is such a perfect one hit wonder song. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely definitely felt the same glow going through the new Radical song. I love, I love Rob, that you have a pet deep cut from the new Radicalology. Uh, well, yeah, it's like it's always been a profound question to me. Like, did the captain of the Titanic cry? You know, like that's actually a really good question 
when you think about it, you know, for exactly 10 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to pop your bubble about, about your second favorite New Radical song, but I'm pretty sure this is the one that they're going to do tomorrow. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think, I, I, I'm, I don't I'm think not there's going to be any hope. arguing about the set list. Yeah, Joe is not one for deep cuts. It's so funny. I had forgotten about Don't Touch, Just Kiss until you said those words, like a thunderbolt hit me. And like, I remembered the song in full. I could not have named another Right Said Fred song. I and then you reminded me. I apologize. Of the, no, no, it's great. I'm going to have it in my head all day. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, your favorite song of 98 was Flagpole Sitta, I believe, which also would have been a rad song uh, for Biden's inauguration. I was wondering if that one still holds up for you. Oh, good God, yes. All these songs still <laughs> hold up for me. Uh, yeah. It was murder trying to limit the hits of 1998, especially also because some of them are permanent hits that stay around forever, like mm-hmm. you know, like Flagpole Sitta or like Torn or yeah. like Are You That Somebody or You Get What You Give. You know, a lot of these songs are permanent songs. But then other songs that, you know, completely disappeared, like one of my very favorites for 1998, I think it was number two on this list, right behind Harvey Danger's flagpole said it was uh, Nicole's Make It Hot, which is a perfect Missy Elliott and Timbaland song. Yes. And absolutely nobody cares about that song. Nobody remembers that song. It, it kind of disappeared into, you know, because Missy and Tim have like so many classic songs and that became sort of a, a sleeper in their catalog. But that was a huge hit at the time. And that's a song that really sums up that year for me in, in a lot of positive ways. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot about the line, one dance left in the chorus, do you get what you give? Like, it's almost an ad lib. Like, I think about how simultaneously poignant and super corny that image is, like how desperate it is. Like, can you think of any other song that's this ridiculous, but also this, like, earnest? It's such a perfect way of putting it. And and that they that they make it a prom song, as well yeah. as this. It's basically a song about feeling every human feeling at the same time, <laughs> from rage about health insurance to... You know, here we are at the prom and there's one dance left. And mm-hmm. again, the Hall and Oatesness of it. I mean, that comparison is so specific. And also, this is a time where Hall and Oates were very much slept on culturally. It was a time yes. when America had not yet arrived at its full two-arm embrace of Hall and Oates the way we have. It was a time where they had stopped being hit makers. And in fact, they had a great small hit in 1998, uh, A Promise Ain't Enough, which is also on my 98 songs of 1998 list. I think it's a fantastic Holland Oates song, but nobody wanted to know about actual Holland Oates in 1998. <laughs> you had to be this, this band that were basically putting Fugazi-style lyrics in a Holland Oates-style <laughs> 80s prom bombast <laughs> confection in order to get the Holland Oates-ness across. And there was something beautiful about that. And, and also, the fact of this guy uttering beatdown threats against <laughs> Beck... Hanson, yes. Courtney Love, and Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson, yes. You can only pray that they show up for the inauguration. It's not <laughs> that would be, be the same that would be fantastic. It. Finally joining hands on stage, exactly. reuniting America. That's that's what we need. That that era of Hall and Oates is great. Biff Bam Boom, uh, Method of Modern Love. That's oh one of my God, favorite. Yes. Yeah, that's Absolutely. a great song. Out of touch. Uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And you know, the very underrated late 80s album, Ooh Yeah, um, with <laughs> everything your heart desires and and missed opportunity. But the late 90s were a time when Holland Oates' influence was everywhere, but right. Holland Oates themselves were in a, a strange sort of cultural void, uh, yeah. even though they were making fantastic music at the time. Yeah. And so this song, it, it's always great to hear it as sort of a stealth Holland Oates song. 
<laughs> uh, it's incredible to me, like you say, that he actually mentions health insurance in this song and that he complained in interviews that everyone ignored that and focused on Beck and Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson. Like, how ahead of its time was this song exactly, like, as a political statement? Absolutely. Well, and also, you know, um, the fact that the, the program advanced by the New Radicals, maybe not the most <laughs> coherent policy-wise, but right. full of uh, rage and buzzwords that people could latch onto. Fashion shoots, you know, a very 1998 thing, complaining about fashion shoots. Um, yeah. Especially in the context of a video that no way was recorded for under seven figures. You know, like this fantastic, let's take over a mall. The mall, kind of let's video. trash the mall, yes. Let's trash the mall, trash the mall, and turn it into this youth culture utopia, this mm. freegan utopia of a new radicals commune, you know, yes. within the context of the mall. Just a beautiful, beautiful video. Uh, the way he wore his... um. Mickey Mouse t-shirt inside out, you know, it's like, what a, <laughs> what a way to flip off the man. There you, know? you go. Like, That'll show him. Exactly. Yeah. Fair use, man. I bought this, but I don't want you to know that I bought this. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> exactly. It's a big tent as a political platform. Um, also, beat down threats. Hanson were minors at the time, you know? I think, <laughs> that it's almost a crime just to I, say that I, in a yes, song. I think yeah. Zach was like 12, right? Yeah, the, the yeah. drummer? He seemed older than that at the yeah, but yeah, that's a little a little ill conceived. None of them were old enough to buy a beer. It's the kind of thing like a really dude, like a beatdown threat against Hanson. Is it just because it rhymed? I guess probably they're just a victim of you know their last name and nothing more. It was, it, you start from Marilyn Manson and you work backward, and suddenly you're threatening to beat up minors. I guess that's how things went <laughs> in '98. Um, you and I talked once about LFO Summer Girls, you know, and we talked about like you say the very specific weirdness of pop in '80 and '98 and '99, and like Len Steal My Sunshine. Like, is this another yes. hit? as a phenomenon that strikes you as super specific to the late nineties, you know, like the, I think of it as like a pre Napster, you know, you said like the last schemes, like all the last minute schemes, like, is this just so emblematic of its time that it couldn't have been a hit, you know, in 94 or in 2004. Well, in, in 94 and 2004, the music world, the audience as well as the industry, very invested in the idea of career artists, the mm. idea that you were getting involved when an artist had a hit song you like to think that you were getting involved in the ground floor of an artist with a great story you were investing yeah yes people put serious time into finding another blind melon song to like <laughs> i feel like blind melon would have gotten their due more if they had come out in 1998 when people were definitely not into the idea of career artists the way that they were in in 93 94 the artists who had huge hits in 1998, people were content to let that hit be the statement. You know, yes. Nobody was saying, okay, Brand Van 3000, let's see if you have another six or seven hits in you. People were yes. like, nope, we're fine. We're good. We're good. That'll do. Um, yes. a, a very strange group of people have praised this song, like unprompted, like Ice-T praised this song, The Edge from U2 praised this song. Like Joni Mitchell has talked up You Get What You Give, like unprompted in interviews. Like, is this a songwriter's songwriter sort of deal? That's very interesting. Uh, I wasn't aware that Joni Mitchell loved this song. And she I did. Have to say, there's something so perfect about that. She loved that... It came out and then they disappeared. Like she likes the recluse aspect. <laughs> so she she's probably super pissed right now, you know, that he's cashing in at, at Biden's inauguration. She would have preferred that he stay, you know, in the shadows forever. But, you know, she'll get over it, I guess. Greg Alexander, to use to use the artist's name. <laughs> sure. That he, 
quickly abandoned the new radicals brand, mm-hmm. although we weren't saying brand yet in the 90s. And he, <laughs> you know, became sort of, you know, like ultimate songwriter for hire, ultimate yeah. mercenary hard gun, and even was nominated for an Oscar for Best That's Song right. a few years That's ago. That's right. Which, you know, really made us all hope for a bucket hat on the red carpet, <laughs> which sadly did not happen. Right. And we're, we're back where we started, which is what was with the bucket hat? Do you think it was like a deliberate decision or like he showed up in it one day, he realized it was the only thing anyone was ever going to know about him, and now he's stuck <laughs> wearing it for the rest of his life? Maybe. I mean, he had... He was really good at lip syncing. It was the kind of thing it was like really... <laughs> his star presence was really clear in that video. Hmm. Definitely like a very intent blinker. So something that always strikes <laughs> about the video is his blinking huh. is really, really intense. He does a lot of blinking and he always seems really angry when he's blinking. He scrunches wow. up his whole face to blink. I got to watch it again now. Huh. His lip syncing game is really, really tight. He came on like somebody with a lot of star presence. But yeah. this song that was a definite outlier, not not just for radio in general, but for his career. Yeah. Uh, Rob, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you so much. Thanks to our guest, Rob Sheffield. Extra special thanks to our producers, Justin Sales and Isaac Lee this week for turning this around on very short notice. And as always, thanks to you for listening. And now, at long last, here are the new radicals. With you get what you give. We'll see you next week.